You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. From verse 9 to the end of the chapter, Job chapter 2 from verse 9, his wife, Job, this is Job's wife for those of you who are visiting here, this is a story of a man who has lost everything, he's lost his family, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his health. And in chapter 2 verse 9, his wife says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity, curse God and die? He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. This morning, a sister congregation in Glasgow, church in a different denomination, but a church who we love and support and want to encourage the Tron, are meeting right now in their wonderfully refurbished building that many of them came sacrificially to do, and they're meeting there for the last time because this week they were served a notice at their prayer meeting by sheriff's officers to quit and to leave everything, and they are going to do that. This morning, we prayed for George, who is in hospital, and uh, we remembered Mary, who is going to hospital for a scan this week with great concern. This week, a woman will be buried who committed suicide because of an overreaction to a silly joke. A family that some of us know are sitting in a house in Sudan, waiting to hear if they are going to be thrown out of the country or possibly even jailed for being Christians. A group of, this week, a group of conservative MPs have uh, started a campaign to, in my view anyway, at least further undermine marriage. This week, people will be made redundant, millions will die, children will be abused, the poor will suffer, there will be numerous tragedies and sorrows that would cause anyone with any kind of heart or understanding to say, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord? And that's the situation that Job is in. We um, think it is legitimate, it is legitimate for us to question God. And uh, there are people who say, where is your God now? And we're going to look at that and how we deal with that in uh, Job's, the reaction of Job's wife and Job's friends. However, uh, last Sunday morning I showed something of uh, the different views that people have of how the universe works and how they think about that. And I've got one more to add, so I just want to go through it again because I did miss out one. First is this, fatalistic view of a mechanistic God, what C.S. Lewis calls a cosmic sadist. That's when people blame God when tragedy occurs, that God didn't push the right buttons or God pushed whatever buttons He wanted, but that was detrimental to us. We saw that's unbiblical. The second view, 
the fatalistic view of a mechanistic universe where everything that's going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. It's genetics. We can't help it. That's the way it is. The third view is what we call chaos theory, where no one is control, and ultimately nothing has any meaning. Everything is emptiness. The Observer newspaper urged its readers, tell children the truth, the world is random. Stuff just happens. There's no reason for anything. The fourth view, the one I missed out last week, is what's called pantheism, the view very new agey or actually old paganism, the, the idea that all is one and God is one and so on. I heard this morning that the pagan society are demanding to be allowed to join interfaith groups because after all they are a faith and it kind of makes sense um, and it's also the reason why I won't be joining any interfaith group because it's just nuts. I mean, imagine Christians saying, well, we've got to get together with people who uh, are, uh, you know, they, they, they want to worship the devil or they want to um, worship nature and they don't believe in God. And yes, but we're all people of faith. Uh, no, we're not, not in that sense. Faith is in Jesus Christ. But anyway, this view that the all is one and, and um, all is one and God is all and so on. The fifth view is that of dualism, which is sadly becoming increasingly popular in Christian circles. The view that there's kind of good God and there's a devil and that God is limited. He's not all-powerful. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He just reacts. I heard a dreadful sermon once. We were reading about Abraham where uh, the preacher said that God held his breath while he waited for Abraham to make the right choice. Well, what if Abraham had made the wrong choice? We'd all have been stuffed. Jesus would never have come. And, and God was just waiting to see if that would happen. Well, that's a, a very unbiblical view. In fact, all of these views are unbiblical. The sixth one, the last one, is a relational view, which says that God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God has created everything. But in that sovereignty, He has allowed other forces to be at work. And that is what goes on in Job, where you find the devil and God at the beginning basically having a discussion or an argument about Job and whether Job followed God really or not. Well, the sixth view, the relational view, is, is I think, the, the true one, but it's one that hurts for us, and we go through hurt. That's why I like the catechism question from the Heidelberg Catechism. What does it profit us to know that God has created and by His providence still upholds all things? The answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, may have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will they cannot move." Why God does things, why He does not intervene in some situations, in every circumstances, is not always answered, but that is where the trust comes in. Now, there's a marvelous wee book by Bob File, who, who works with Cornhill in the Tron, um, about Job. And in it, he points out something that I think is really, really important. He says this, depending on our faith at any given moment, the fact that God is in control may cause us to thank Him or to dread Him. 
So God is in control, and you're in hospital, and you're waiting for the result of a scan. You thank God, or do you dread? Probably all of us, says Bob Vile, have had the kind of experience where the problem is not that we do not believe God to be in control, but that we secretly do not trust God to work out a scenario we will like. We do not doubt that God is in control, nor even that He has our best interests at heart. What we do doubt is that He knows as well as we do what our best interests are. I think that's a very insightful comment. I think that there are people who will say, yes, God is in control. God is sovereign. Hear that? Got it. I think there are other people who are just as prepared to say, yes, God is good and God is love and He means what's for the best. But a very subtle temptation is for us to say, or even to feel, but God doesn't know this. It's it's obvious for the best that I get better. It's obvious for the best that this person is healed. It's obvious for the best that this works out in the church in this way. It's obvious for the best that I get this job. And we think that just God doesn't know. But it is really important for every believer to know this. God knows, God loves, and God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. And you have to hold those three things together when every bone in your body is screaming out, that cannot be right, because otherwise this wouldn't be happening. In a relational view of the universe, the one that I'm advocating from this, then everything is related. You and I are, are related in different ways. Right, right now, for example, if I hadn't prepared this, then that would impact upon what you hear. If you didn't prepare in terms of prayer and so on, that impacts. Every relationship we have impacts upon every other relationship. Your relationship with your partner, your relationship with your friends, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your boss, your relationship with your fellow believers, your re- all impact one another, and they all impact our relationship with God. So, let's look at what Job has to say or experience in all of this. They're essential. His relationships are essential in terms of understanding his relationship with God. And let's deal, first of all, with Job's wife. Now, for some people, Job's wife has become a feminist icon. She's a really good woman. She... uh, Job's the big bad patriarch, and Mrs. Job is the long-suffering wife. Uh, In Calvin's view, Calvin, subtle as ever, says she's the tool of Satan. Um, Augustine goes along with that, says she's the devil's advocate. Well, I I picked this up. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, which was used at the time of Jesus, and it's it goes into it in some detail. It expands things a bit. And this is how it expands this. After a long time, his wife spoke to him. How long will you bear this and say, behold, I will bear with it for a short time, still in expectation of the hope of my redemption? Behold, your memory is swept from the earth, your sons and daughters, the pains and difficulties of my womb, for whom I suffered and worked in vain. You are sitting in the filth with the worms, and you bring the night into the open air. And I go as a day laborer through the land from place to place and house to house. I wait for the sun to go down to find rest from the toil and pain which now overcomes me. Say a word against the Lord and die. This is a woman who's at the absolute end of her tether. 
She is absolutely exhausted. She's seen all her children die. She's seen all her wealth go. She's seen all that she has lived and loved and worked for disappear. And you've got to have some sympathy with her. Maybe she feels really frustrated by her husband. Wouldn't be the first time that that has happened in a marriage. Maybe she thinks it's your fault, it's your piety, it's your holiness that's robbed me of this, my ten children, my social standing, my money. Maybe she hates God. Maybe she just wants to end Job's misery. She sees him so sick and ill. Maybe she's in for a kind of theological euthanasia. This is a way to end it all. Maybe she feels guilt associated with the loss of her children. What if it was my fault? Job responds to her, and you've got, as I say, you've got to have some sympathy with her position. She's gone through absolute torture. And Job responds to her by saying, you're talking like a foolish woman. It could mean, this is kind of a a very low rebuke. It could mean a, you're, you're talking like a, an irreligious woman who lacks understanding. But in biblical terms, what he's saying here is very serious. Psalm 14, verse 1, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Deuteronomy 32, 6, is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father, your Creator, who made you and formed you? Psalm 74, verse 18, how foolish people have reviled your name. So Job says to her, to speak in such a way, to want to die, to curse God, despite all that's happened to you, he says, that's a foolish way of speaking. She is a woman who is angry with God, angry with Job, a woman whose patience has gone. It is hard to live near somebody who is suffering and be able, unable to do anything. Such frustration can be turned into irritation and anger with the one who is in pain. Also, you have to say this, that being angry with God, or at least asking questions of God, is not always wrong. For example, the first two chapters of Habakkuk, read a couple of verses there, Habakkuk 1, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous and justice is perverted. And she's questioning. But she is doing wrong in this. She's putting the temptation into Job's mouth, which the devil had said that he would do. Take away everything from him and he will curse God. And Job's wife is saying, curse God. Do it. Curse him and die. Maybe she intends her words to be helpful. Maybe she's speaking out of love for Job. Maybe it's anger and bitterness even against him. Probably, like so many of us, because we are all so complex, really, it's a combination of all of these. But here's the point. What she says and what she does doesn't alleviate his pain, puts him under more pressure, and causes him more pain. She prompts him to despair. To curse God and die is the last abandonment of faith and the ultimate despair. 
One man writes this about our marriages. How many men, and you can reverse it, women as well, you, could, you can reverse this. It's, this is not having a go at women, by the way. It says, how many men of deepest godliness find when in extremity that they are joined to one whose faith turns out to be no more than a glossy veneer? How many marriages, even at the highest levels of Christian piety and service, are a heartbreak? There we see the inner weakness of some of the great men of God. Marriages of Christians are not necessarily Christian marriages, although they could and should be. Listen to that one. Marriages of Christians are not necessarily Christian marriages, though they could and should be. There are some of you who will say, I really want to be married. I really want to be married. I don't want to be single. It's not a wrong desire. But if you think somebody, or just by marrying another Christian, that that's it. You've got a Christian marriage. That's not the case. Sometimes husbands can behave in such a way that their faith is almost a sham. Sometimes wives can behave in such a way. Sometimes the biggest stumbling block to you in your walk with God can be your partner, which is the most painful thing because they should be the greatest help to you. Proverbs says, a godly woman who can find. It's a great blessing from the Lord. A godly husband who can find. It's a great blessing from the Lord. Can I ask those of you who are married, a very simple question. I ask it of myself. To what extent are you helping and assisting your partner's faith, and to what extent are you undermining it? It's a serious question. Secondly, there are Job's friends. Because Job was a chieftain of great importance, he had friends in different areas. And we're told about his three friends, uh, three wise men, like Christmas, came from the east, from three different cities, sometime after the event. They obviously had heard about it. News didn't travel by phone or by text. Um, This is sometime afterwards they come to visit him. They come from Edom, Uh, Eliphaz means God conquers, Bildad probably means God is love, and Zophar, I have no idea what that means. But uh, they come, Edom was where Job himself was from, Obadiah verse 8, in that day declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Timan. These were wise men from Edom. And they come, and they're silent. They could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Romans 12:15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. What do you say to somebody who sits there across the table and says, I've just had the results of my test. I've got cancer. What can you say? You come out with a Christian truism. The Lord is in control. They know that. They don't need you to tell them that. I'm really sorry. That's not adequate. What can you say? You, could just, you, you just look at them and you, you, you have to weep. You, you, you can't just come out with words what do you say when someone's child dies? And you say, well, God, God is sovereign. God is in control. You can't just behave like that. In this sense, they were wise. They were silent. Part of the custom in Jewish uh, culture at this time, a Bedouin custom as well, 
was to, as, as soon as the news of an illness circulated round, friends came to visit, they would form a circle around the ill person in silence without saying a word, they would listen to his groans and cries. Only when they addressed, or the person who was ill addressed them, did they feel that they could comment. But Job's friends, when they see him, they are just shocked at his appearance, and they treat him as dead. I, uh, about not this time last year, but a bit further on, when I was beginning to get better from being in ICU, Derek Lamont and Neil McMillan came to visit me. I was back home by then, and they came in, and I saw the look on their faces, and they were shocked. And I said, what, do I really look that bad? And they said, no, you look that good. They said, because when we saw you before, and I didn't remember them coming in to see me, when we saw you before, you looked dreadful. You looked horrible. It was really, really upsetting. And to see somebody who physically shows severe illness, that's what Job's friends were facing. Now, I don't think they really were that empathetic because they sprinkled dust on their heads, which was really a sign of... uh, death. And so, they're basically, they're, they're not speaking to Job, it says. They don't say a word to him. I, I very much doubt that they didn't speak to each other. And it's almost the, the impression in the passage is not of sympathy and empathy, but, oh dear, our friend's as good as dead. They're gathering round almost vulture-like. I think the evidence here overall and from the rest of the book is that Job's friends were not warm Maybe they did want to comfort, but they were cold and rigid. They were not prepared, as we will see, not to have the answers. They were not prepared to empathize. They were not genuinely prepared to feel the pain. When you have someone who is seriously ill, who is a friend, going to them with answers for everything is not really going to help, unless you've got something that will cure them. But sharing in their pain It's why there are people who don't like to go to funerals and stay away from sick people and don't like to hear of people who've got trouble. When friends have got trouble, stay away from them. And they can justify it by saying, well, let them, you know, suffer in silence. Let them, you know, how can I help them? But in reality, sometimes that can be very selfish because the only way that we can help is to go and to share in their pain. And none of us want to share in pain. We are inherently selfish people. And that's what he was faced with in his relationships, a wife who wanted him to give up his faith and friends who thought that he was as good as dead and treated him as such. So his response in all of this, he never curses God, though all his human relationships are broken. I think the Psalms are enormously helpful in helping us understand and express our emotions. Psalm 38, for example. I said, I will watch my ways. I think Job could at 39. Psalm could have, um, Job could have said this. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I'll put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned. It's not a guy meditating and chilling out. It's a guy meditating and being torn apart. And I spoke with my tongue, show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. 
Psalm 142, verse 4, look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Job is broken in his body. He is broken in his mind. He is broken in his relationships. And yet he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Anderson says this, when the bad as well as the good is received at the hand of God, every experience of life becomes an occasion of blessing, but the cost is high. It is easier to lower your view of God than it is to raise it to such a height. Job teaches us to have a much higher view of God than we are inclined to do so. And then, I think in, in, in all of that, I don't want to finish this without, um, because to do so would be to leave it a, a kind of half story without referring it to Jesus. And again, that's not distorting the text because the whole of the Old Testament, including the book of Job, and I would argue even especially the book of Job, points towards Jesus Christ. In Habakkuk 1 and verse 5, After Habakkuk asks these questions, God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. The question with our suffering is, what does God do? Does God care and what does He do in it? And this is the answer that God gives. It's in It's the answer of Jesus Christ from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Job went through hell. Job experienced phenomenal suffering and loss and questioning. Job was so distorted in his physical pain that he was disgusting to look at. And Jesus went through hell. And Jesus was so distorted in physical pain that he was disgusting to look at. We were coming down in the car and, and um, Annabelle was saying about how she doesn't really like nativity scenes because it's always the kind of really, really cute Jesus, the baby with the, you know, the donkey and the lambs and the nice clean hay and, and, and so on. And it wasn't like that. The, the nativity wasn't like that. It was a horrible, horrible thing in many ways. The birth of a baby was wonderful. The birth of a baby in such circumstances was not wonderful. It's like the cross of Jesus, where churches put up a cross with a saintly-looking Jesus with a halo above his head, arms stretched out, smiling down on the congregation. It wasn't like that. He was like one from whom men hide their faces. This is hard for us to understand, and it's hard for us to grasp. We were talking about, as well, Mel Gibson. See what conversations you can have in the 10-minute drive down to the church. We're talking about Mel Gibson and the passion of the Christ as well. You know, in some ways a phenomenal film, but in other ways, not enough. It doesn't show enough. You can't, you you look at it and you go, I can't watch that. But it doesn't 
say, the spiritual suffering. Well, let me tell you this. When you sit beside somebody who's been told that they've got cancer and are probably going to die, and your heart absolutely breaks for them, you are beginning to experience something of what Christ experienced on the cross. I can't get away from Rabbi Duncan's phrase that there is no pit so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still. That's why if you are with people who are suffering, if you are working with the sick, if you are working with the poor, if you are working with those, who, if you're friends with those who have broken relationships and all the rest of it, the most wonderful thing you can ever, ever do for them is introduce them to Jesus Christ who bore all our sins and sorrows. Look at what it says in Isaiah as well. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was rejected by His family. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. Jesus was forsaken by God, or at least felt he was forsaken by God. Jesus suffered. And the only answer that you and I have as Christians to this question of suffering is just simply this. It is Jesus Christ, not the cheap and shallow Jesus who if you're good enough, He'll make you better. If you pray enough, He'll make you better. If you're good enough, He'll make you wealthy. If you pray enough, He'll get you to marry the right person and everything will always be wonderful and hunky-dory ever afterwards. Don't offer that plastic Jesus to anybody because it's cruel. It's cruel to those who are sick and cruel to those who suffer. But the real Jesus, the Jesus who knows and sees the pains. Look at this. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. I don't understand that. I honestly don't understand that. But I know it, and I feel it. And it's why somehow my prayer is far more real when I come to God with a broken heart and say, Lord, I can't cope with this. It's up to you. You can cope with this. Each of you here today will have, and probably does have, infirmities and sorrows. But each of you here today has this amazing thing, this absolutely amazing thing, that the Son of God comes to take and to carry your infirmities and your sorrows. I love Christmas now. I used to hate Christmas. I was a, a Puritan of the Puritans. You know, I think everyone should work at Christmas and Turkey should be banned and all the rest of it. Santa was Satan. You know, you can, I, 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 all that stuff. But the, the older I get, the more I like Christmas. The more I hate, by the way, how our society celebrates Christmas. I hate it. I, to me, I, I'm not going near a center of town for the next month. Because it's almost blasphemous the way that people overindulge in order to celebrate somebody who came to suffer. But I love Christmas because I love this fantastic notion of God's answer to suffering to be to come into the world to suffer Himself for us. And that's not religious talk. That's not fairy story. That's not myth. 
That's ultimately the only reality that you can go to when people suffer like Job and say, there is a God for you who has done this for you, who is available for you. I don't know the answers why, but I do know who, and I do know what He has done. It's in Christ alone that my hope is found. Let's pray. Lord, we think of those who are incredibly wounded and hurt. Those who lie in hospital, those who are at home afraid, those who've been battered and bruised sometimes by other people, those who are facing war and suffering, those who have lost jobs, those who think that their only happiness is going to come out of a bottle or a needle. Those, O oh Lord, who just cannot believe that their partner has walked out on them. Those who have been abused by parents. Lord, we think of the pain. The, we, we can't understand that pain. We cannot bear our own, never mind anyone else's. And then we think of what you did. You came into this world to be born in poverty, to live, to be rejected, to be killed, to carry our infirmities, our weaknesses, our sorrows, to lift us, to offer to us that we cast all our burdens on You because underneath are the everlasting arms. And when we think of that, our hearts that are filled with pain are healed, and they are filled with joy. How wonderful that the divine surgeon has come and mended the broken. Lord, we are broken people. There's so much brokenness in this world. And you come to heal. You come to bring wholeness and unity. There'll come a time, your word tells us, when there'll be no more pain and sorrow and suffering. That time is not yet. But we long, O oh Lord, for it to come. And we bless you that the promise of Christmas is that Jesus has come and Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus shall come again and the gates of hell shall not prevail and nothing, nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, come to us this morning, Emmanuel. In your name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.